Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. It has to be a different existence when you are engaged in an activity with the thought process that everyone around you is against you, but you're doing it for a principle and a purpose and a reason that's much higher and much more enduring than that particular moment. And I would have to believe that that is a principal thing that gets them through it. Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is your uh, host, Steve Lowry, with my uh, co-host, Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm I'm excited and not just because I had three cups of coffee, although <laughs> I did have three cups of coffee. Only three cups of coffee? Only three. Um, but I'm excited. We're doing something a little different today. Um, yeah, so, it's going to be um, fun. Yeah, today. Uh, so we're we're uh, doing a special episode in honor of uh, Black History Month, and um, and so we've got uh, a really fascinating case, a historical case to talk about, and just a a fantastic guest uh, that we're gonna um, we're gonna go through uh, one of the most important cases in Georgia history and in in constitutional law history. Um, so. Uh, Without further ado, I'll introduce our guest, Derek Alexander Pope. Derek, how are you doing? Very good, Steve. You're very good, Yvonne. How are you both doing? Doing well, good, doing good. We're doing good. And as we were saying before, we're, uh, you know, th- this uh, episode is going to cover uh, a lot of ground, I think, and talk about some really important things. Uh, but it just reminded us, uh, you know, about how much we either didn't know or had forgotten about constitutional law. And, uh, and then just about the history of civil rights in this nation and just um, things that I think maybe uh, a lot of people who don't, who, who, you know, haven't really studied the history uh, would know about how um, um, the civil rights movement evolved in this country. I agree totally. It's one of those things that we are familiar with, but there are a lot of aspects about it with which we are unfamiliar. And when people sort of get that whole picture, they realize that there was so very much more happening during that moment. And so very much of it is reminiscent of things that we're experiencing today. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I and we'll talk about this more, but I thought it was interesting just to see how um, the civil rights movements itself and the NAACP uh, shifted its sort of strategy and how it was, uh, you know, focusing its legal challenges uh, in large part due to the efforts of Thurgood Marshall. Um, but, uh, and we'll talk about that some more as we, uh, as we go on, but let me, uh, let me introduce you, Derek, to all of our, uh, listeners. Um, Derek Alexander Pope is the president and managing director of the Arc of Justice Institute, uh, and is, um, uh, spearheading the Arc of Justice Project, uh, and he is also the host of the Hidden Legal Figures podcast, uh, which talks about the history of civil rights in this country from a legal aspect, and, and talks about some of the, you know, key figures of the civil rights movement and um, and their not only uh, what they did from a legal aspect and how they changed uh, the law and history of this country, but just even sort of a personal. Uh, background people like Donald Hollowell uh, and um, and Horace Ward and um, Thurgood Marshall and, and and giants like that in uh, in in sort of uh, civil rights legal history. Um, 
Wait, and, and I don't, I don't want to interrupt ahead. the intro of Derek because, yeah. but um, it's a really great podcast. It's really interesting. Um, I've just kind of started listening to it, but there's, it's it, like we touched on earlier. It just, it's just a small piece of showing you how much went into the civil rights movement that I don't think I was ever taught or ever learned. Um, and it's just really fascinating and well done, but we're turning the tables on Derek today and yeah. He's, he's going to be the interviewed person, but it's right, a really right. fantastic podcast. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, and, and I do want to encourage everybody, all of our listeners to go and check out uh, the hidden legal figures podcast. And if you want to look up uh, Derek, you can go to on the arc.net uh, on the arc.net. That is the website for the arc of justice Institute. Um, and then uh, just to give a little background for you, uh, Derek, uh, Derek is a graduate from the Loyola University School of Law and won the Bodhi Advocacy Award from the Loyola Law Clinic. Uh, and he won the Sterling Performance Award from the Council of Legal Education uh, at Emory University School of Law in 1987 and uh, is an adjunct professor at the Georgia State University College of Law, uh, is part of um, the U.S. Supreme Court's Historical Society and uh, Phi Alpha Delta Law Fraternity, and as I said, uh, has is the president and managing director of the Arc of Justice Institute. Um, Derek, why don't you just give our listeners sort of a, a, a overview of what the Arc of Justice Institute is and what and and what's its um, um, program. Sure. The Arc of Justice Institute is a public educational institute, insti public educational uh, institution, and uh, our mission is to foster a greater understanding of the rule of law where governance, economics, and rights intersect. Uh, that sounds like a mouthful, but most times when people are thinking about one issue or the other, they fail to take take a, have an appreciation that many of the issues that are troubling, they have this overlap. And so we want to make certain that we touch upon where governance, with governing and, and, and rules, make rule, formal rulemaking, economics, and individual rights come to a forefront where they intersect. And to demonstrate that as we begin, our flagship in initiative is, as you mentioned, the development of a traveling exhibit that honors what we call the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. We thought that there was no better place to begin to explain the significance of the rule of law than during a period when we thought lawlessness was the rule. Yeah. Right. Right. And Derek, can you talk about, I thought it was cool that um, kind of how, um, trips to museums that you and your daughter were taking kind of led to this idea? Oh, yes. This happens when she is a sixth grade student in middle school back in 2012, and I'm a parent volunteer. And they were touring and visiting all of the civil rights museums in Alabama. And while at that moment, I'm trying my best to just avoid uh, preteen boys and girls, <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> I am... I'm looking at all of the exhibits, and for some inexplicable reason, the exhibits I'm looking at, I start thinking about the cases and lawyers that were associated with what I was seeing in the exhibit. Museum to museum, exhibit after exhibit, that same experience was happening. And I started 
thinking about those lawyers and thinking about those cases. Well, when the the field trip was over, I didn't think anything about it. I simply said to myself, it sure would be nice if there could be some way of recognizing and demonstrating what lawyers and judges did. We fast forward three years later and I become co-chair of the State Bar of Georgia Committee to Promote Inclusion in the Profession. And the idea came back to me. And that committee, we started working on it and decided that that was an initiative that would be suitable for that committee. The State Bar of Georgia Executive Committee, I made a presentation to them to let them know, here's what one of your committees is working on. And later in 2017, the State Bar of Georgia endorsed the traveling exhibit as a bar initiative. Now, along the way, it became obvious to everyone except me that this was an undertaking that was a little bit bigger than a volunteer group of lawyers. And it was decided that something had to come into existence to manage this huge undertaking. And I don't mind telling you, I feel like I got sandbagged a little bit. (laughs) I had known that this was going to become almost a full-time undertaking, I probably just kept my mouth shut back on the field. <laughs> wow. But that's really fantastic. I mean, it's it what a cool thing to look at. And the and because you do think a lot about it. I mean, maybe I don't know if I thought about it before, but but practicing now, you do read these cases like the one we're going to talk about today and think about the work and and the the bravery involved both in the people who are, you know, the plaintiffs in these cases, but also the people who take on the the legal work and the the judges who adjudicate them. So you're absolutely right. And that's why we use the phrase specifically heroic and vital contribution. The case that you referenced that we're going to talk about and many of the others, there's nothing going on here, but legal heroism. We're talking yeah. about a time when all the laws, all the customs, and all the preferences were skewed against equality, weighted heavily against inclusion. And so when you're talking about the lawyers and the judges who went against many of them, especially some of the white male judges who went against their upbringing, went against the custom and said, what really is paramount and what must prevail are, is the rule of law and and vital because without that, I am very respectful of those who courageously participated in demonstrations and protests, but I always inform and remind them that had it not been for the work of lawyers and just judges, your protesting and your demonstration, you would have just been, a, that just would have been nothing more than a large public gathering. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, Derek, so you, you talk about the traveling exhibit. Is this something that is that is uh, currently that people can go see? And if so, where can they see it? No, not yet. It's scheduled okay. to premiere next year. Okay. Uh, and that was one of the reasons that we started things like our public education programs over at our partner law schools. All of the public, all the law schools in Georgia are part of our program partners. And we had begun having public education programs to let people know about these legal cases, about these lawyers and about these these, these, these judges as a way to 
in, in advance to let them know an exhibit is, is coming. And so it is being developed in partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in downtown Atlanta, and it is going to premiere in 2021. Okay. That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to see that. That uh, uh, that will be fascinating. And we, um, we, we have a, it's a we have a very unique way of premiering it and traveling it. We're going to utilize the old county courthouses throughout Georgia. We thought there's no better place to demonstrate what lawyers and judges did in that legal moment than to have the exhibit on display in places that reminiscent of where they did their work. Yeah. Absolutely. That'd that be is, really cool. That is such a fantastic idea. And for people who don't live in Georgia or maybe haven't traveled around Georgia that much, if you mostly for work, I guess, but you know, a lot of times if you're trying to avoid the interstates and go to different places in Georgia, the, the, you know, the old roads and two lane highways will really take you through all these old town squares and past all these old, beautiful courthouses. So yeah. that's just a fantastic idea. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. It's always been sort of amazing to me that, um, you know, that we have all of these beautiful courthouses and even in towns that have sort of been mm -hmm. uh, run down a little bit. I mean, the courthouses are usually still uh, well maintained and, and beautiful and uh, in the center of town. Very much. Yeah, they're, they're wonderful places to, to visit. And so we, that's why we want to utilize them. Well, uh, Derek, before we get talking to the case, tell our listeners a little bit about the Hidden Legals Legal Figures uh, podcast and uh, and and what you've been doing there. And I and I should also give a shout out to our producer Raz because I know he produces uh, your podcast as well. And um, and so um, tell our listeners, you know, uh, if they listen to the Hidden Legal Figures podcast, what can they uh, what can they plan on hearing about? Well, season one, of course, our inaugural season, what we want to do is start with what we did do is we want to start with what people are familiar with, tell them a little bit about some aspects of what they're familiar with that they may not have known. And then we'll move into some of the other lesser known movements. So our first few episodes, we focused on the legal efforts associated with the Montgomery bus boycott. We focused on the legal efforts associated with the sit-ins and we focused on the legal efforts of Brown versus Board of Education. And most people have a somewhat of a working familiarity with Brown versus Board of Education, but what people may not know is that there were four different cases yeah. and one from the District of Columbia that were consolidated into Brown. And each of them had different aspects of former rules that were depriving Black people from having education in public schools. And so we thought it was interesting for the listener and the, and the, the listener to understand that what you thought you knew about Brown versus Board of Education, there was so much more to it. And so the same thing with things like the Montgomery bus boycott and the city is. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. <laughs> uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? 
I think I know where you're going with this and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. <laughs> uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. So, yeah, so I wanted to go ahead and start talking about this case. And, and uh, you know, and I was thinking it might be good to give our listeners a little bit of history. But the case that we're going to be talking about is uh, called Holmes versus Danner. Uh, and it involves Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter, uh, who were the first two students that were admitted to the University of Georgia. Uh, Walter Danner uh, was the uh, registrar for the University of, of Georgia. And um, up until that point, uh, there had been uh, no um, uh, black people that had, had been admitted to the University of Georgia, and so this was the case that was uh, that was brought and uh, ultimately succeeded in um, in desegregating uh, the University of Georgia and leading to other universities uh, in Georgia also desegregating. And um, and one thing I think it's interesting, and before we talk about the cases, you know, this case was in 1961, so mm -hmm. we're talking seven years uh, after. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education, and I think you know for the for our listeners who are lawyers, they probably understand. But if, but for our listeners who are not lawyers, you know Brown versus Board of Education is the is the case that uh, that essentially struck down uh, racial segregation and the concept of uh, separate but equal. Uh, and so you would think that after that case got decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, that uh, everything uh, just starts getting integrated and they, and and um, and that, you know, we just move on. But that's not at all the way uh, the history uh, here uh, happened. And, and essentially, uh, even after that uh, opinion came out, um, each southern state especially uh, uh, refused to comply with it. And so essentially, people like the lawyers that were involved in this case had to file suit and specifically go from state to state and integrate uh, all of these uh, institutions by court order. And, and um, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I just want to say um, for our listeners, like I'm going to admit this, even though it's embarrassing, I I didn't realize that this, when I started reading about what was happening in the case we're going to talk about today, Holmes versus Danner, I was actually like, wait, when did Brown versus Board happen? I was like, I, I didn't know that actually. <laughs> I thought things like really kind of changed after Brown versus Board and and then, and there was progress from there. So, um, you know, that's one of the things we're going to talk about today, but I actually, and like, did not know that right now as a adult human lawyer. So <laughs> it's embarrassing, but I'm admitting it. 
Well, I mean, uh, it, admission is the first step, right? Yvonne? So <laughs> that's, that's good. But, um, but yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, and we'll, and, and we'll talk about this case, uh, uh, Derek, but you know, I, I, I guess I did just want everybody to, to know that just because there had been this landmark decision of Brown versus board of education, it didn't mean, uh, that, um, that, that, uh, racial segregation went away um, and that it, it took uh, multiple cases and multiple steps uh, all around the nation in order to um, in order to do away with um, uh, uh, with that institution. And again, Steve, that underscores why this project we believe is so important because it, to use your words, it took multiple cases, multiple across the nation, multiple steps. Uh, as, as everyone, as you mentioned, everyone may have thought that right after Brown, then the page was immediately turned. But it was a it it it's a very long chapter of, of events that precede Brown, and then some events that needs to take place after Brown. So, and I think everyone who was involved in one way or the other making something like Brown versus the Board of Education happen. I think everybody was probably a little taken aback when there was this rampant, massive Southern resistance to the ruling from, from, from that case. Yeah, and as we'll see, I mean, it, it, they really got quite creative in how they did it because they, you know, from a technical standpoint would say, hey, we're not segregating. Uh, you know, they just wouldn't admit anybody. And then they would sort of string out the process and come up with uh, many multiple different reasons why uh, that particular person didn't meet their admission requirements. Exactly. Um, but I, but I, but Derek, before we get into uh, Holmes versus Danner, I wanted to just kind of you know take a step back uh, from a, a historical um, standpoint and uh, you know sort of walk through you know how we had gotten to the Brown versus Board of Education, how we got to uh, Holmes versus Danner, and you know uh, one thing that I always thought was or I, I still believe is just uh, really interesting and sad in a way is that. Um, you know, it, it's it's sort of the same thing we just talked about with Brown versus Board of Education. That after the Civil War, um, you know, and we had passed the Thirteenth Amendment uh, to our Constitution, which outlawed slavery, passed the Fourteenth Amendment uh, that declared all people born in uh, the United States were citizens of the United States and entitled to equal protection. Uh, and then we passed the Fifteenth Amendment that you uh, could not deny. Uh, anyone the right to vote based on their race or color, um, that you you would think that after passing those constitutional amendments, um, that that sort of uh, meant okay, you know, now we're at a uh, at a place where um, you know you know um, uh, uh, black persons are um, are treated uh, equally, and for a short time uh, in the South there was this uh, Reconstruction effort, and it seemed like that was actually what was going to happen. There actually um, were uh, um, uh, several black persons who were who were elected to Congress, and um, and then. Uh, I, I would say after uh, the federal troops were withdrawn from the South and uh, and sort of uh, the South was no longer under the control of the federal government or as much, then you sort of had um, this pulling back of uh, of um, African-American rights or, or, or civil rights. And um, 
and then you had the institution of Jim Crow in these constitutions that basically, even though you had these constitutional rights, uh, read them very narrowly and limited them. Uh, for instance, with the 15th Amendment, um, that you couldn't deny anyone the right to vote based on race or color. Um, the South became very creative in putting in uh, literacy requirements, uh, poll taxes, uh, and different reasons why um, someone wouldn't be qualified to vote, which uh, affected a- African Americans uh, disproportionately. Um, so, so talk about that a little bit, Derek, about sort of our history and and you know and how you know the the I think it's it's surprising to a to a lot of people who haven't really studied it that um you know after the civil war um even though we had these these constitutional amendments um it, things you know in many ways um didn't get any better or not much better at all that's an excellent period to focus on steve the, that 10 year period in america known as reconstruction and what did and what did not happen out of and through that period, we're still living through, playing out, grappling with today. One of the foremost experts on that period, Eric Foner, says that there were four areas that took that were taking place in that moment that we're still grappling with today. Citizenship, voting, the issue of domestic terrorism in the form of the Ku Klux Klan and things of and violent intimidation of people having trying to express hold and preserve their rights. And the fourth one is the relationship between political and economic democracy. We're still dealing with those particular aspects. And so what you find, as you mentioned, at the close of at the close of Reconstruction, the southern states began to amend their constitutions. And in their constitutions, they began a systematic whittling away and destruction of rights of Black people around those areas that I mentioned earlier, citizenship, voting, and lessening, if not even outright ignoring and and, and eliminating any kind of legal sanction or punishment for those who may have been committing responsible for condoning, encouraging, or permitting violent reprisals against Black people asserting their rights. Voting is where, where, where it began, because quite naturally, uh, if you can control the number, the, the number and type of people who are elected to legislative bodies, they can put into, into place rules that maintain a particular status quo. And so you, if you effectively excluded Black people from voting, as you mentioned, with the pernicious use of things like literacy tests, um, you have to be able to, before going to register to vote, you would have to prove that you could recite and and and, and say what the meaning of, of provisions in the United States Constitution were. Uh, one innocuous aspect even happened in Georgia when a person went to register to vote uh, they were asked if they could understand a particular passage. And of course, the passage was in Chinese. Okay. Um, so you would have things of that nature, like grandfather clauses. If a person in your family had been able to vote in the election of 1870, then you yourself did not, you were exempted from having to take these literacy, te- these literacy tests. Well, 
there were no there were no black persons who were eligible to vote in 1870, so they did not qualify for the particular exemption. The poll taxes you had to be able to pay the tax uh, in order to register, and if you were unable to afford that tax or able to show that you had a particular amount of property. Um, you were not able to register. And so these were the things that were going on at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, magnificent lawyers that we've never heard of, like Emmanuel uh, Molyneux out of Washington, D.C., Wilfred Horace Smith out of Alabama were filing cases to, to deal with these particular issues and that were making their way to the Supreme Court. And the court surprisingly was responding favorably. Some of the arguments of the states were that we're not denying a right to vote. We are exercising our constitutional right to prescribe the mode and manner of holding elections. And so some of the, some of the early Supreme Court decisions saw through that pretext and you began a slow, systematic, dismantling of those kinds of aspects. Well, along the uh, 1920s, you have the emergence of the NAACP and its very first case that it became a part of at the Supreme Court level was a voting case. And that began to then turn into the NAACP's, what eventually became the Legal Defense Fund in looking at other areas of, of discrimination and segregation. And again, the big one continued to be voting. Around 1945, there was a case uh, called Smith versus Allwright that, that outlawed the use of the all white primary in Texas. Uh, black people were being excluded from voting in the primary, the Democratic primary, and of course, at that moment, the Democratic Party had it was a had a, a strong hold on Southern states, uh, but Black people could vote in the general election. Well, the candidate was actually chosen in the Democratic primary, where Black people were being excluded. Excluded. So by the time the general election came around, that was not that was nothing. It was during that period of the Supreme Court. Uh, in, in Smith versus Allwright, having dealt with the issue of whether the Democratic Party controlling the election machinery was a private party or part of state action. And the court began to start, start saying, yes, this is state action here. And so that outlawed the, the all-white primary in 1945. In 1946, here in Georgia, a gentleman named Primus King in Muscogee County in Columbus, decided to challenge the all-white primary here. And those cases, that's been the beginning of encouraging young activists in Georgia and in Atlanta. And by the time we get to 1952, that's when Donald Hollowell is, is now here in Atlanta. And that energy around the NAACP victories, that that invigorating spirit around the courts and the legal decisions, breathing some life back into the 14th, the 15th Amendment that you, you talked about, it set the stage for a case like Holmes versus Danner. Right. Yeah, and uh, um, you know, one thing I, I I just wanted to point out, and I, th I thought it was interesting. I, uh, I was uh, I 
reading the book of uh, Saving the Soul of Georgia, uh, which is about Donald Hollowell and the, and the struggle for civil rights, uh, is an excellent book. But, um, you know, one thing I thought was really interesting that I read there was, you know, so we know that the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, which was in 1896, had set this issue of uh, a separate but equal, saying that um, that if, as long as things, you know, were, were um uh, equal, it was okay to be separate, and that and that that uh, met the requirements of the Fourteenth Amendment, and really, uh, you know, uh, made it legalized racial segregation, and and made it so that it, it could be done uh, all over the country. Um, and it, from at least what I was uh, reading is that um, the NAACP, when they first started out, they their legal strategy was to focus on making sure that whatever accommodations they got were uh, just as equal as as what whites were receiving. And it was really when you had people like Thurgood Marshall uh, get involved and, and when he became the uh, the director, uh, uh, or the, uh, the head legal counsel for the NAACP, that he really changed the focus uh, of the, the legal strategy instead of, you know, accepting separate but equal and then just making sure that they were uh, the same uh, was really just challenging racial segregation head on and 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 really uh, spearheading this concept that um, you know separate but equal you know it cannot be if you're separate you cannot be equal uh, and leading to Brown versus Board of Education. And that was an interesting strategy because not it was only one year after Plessy versus Ferguson was decided that a group of lawyers took on a case and directly challenged the separate but equal aspect that uh, it's 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 unconstitutionality in the exact same way that Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP would do in 1954. So their strategy at the beginning recognized practically that there was no legal appetite for and political cover to mount an assault on the outright unconstitutionality of separate but equal. And as you point out, they decided to go after the equal aspect of that particular pernicious constitutional custom. They went and they did it in the beginning in the professional um, level of, of, of education and, and particularly in law school cases out of Oklahoma, uh, cases out of Texas, where people were applying to attend, the black people were applying to attend the law schools of their state. And Either in some instances, there was a black law school that whose facilities, whose funding, whose faculty, whose curriculum were not equal to the state supported institution. And so they were bringing the cases saying, well, these facilities are going to have to be brought up to the to, to the level of being equal or the individual is going to have to be admitted to the state institution. Well, making the institutions equal were, were, were going to be too costly. And that was part of the evidence that was mounted at trial. It just it, it cost too much. And, it's, and that was even more, more noticeable in those areas where there, the state did not have a so-called black law school. And so at that point, that was where they began, as you point out, to strategically and intention, from an intentional standpoint, whittle away 
at the equal side of the paradigm. And that opened the door for the NAACP to go head on into the separate but equal and, and realize and, and making the argument that just as a concept itself, it is blatantly violative of the 14th Amendment. I was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm watching you, Yvonne. I thought you were going to say something. But no. I was. I did. Well, I was, but then I was like, "Don't say that. That's such a dumb <laughs> comment." But I'm just so. I just keep thinking, right, about how um, stressed, how in, invested, and stressed I get about each and every one of my cases <laughs> that affect, you know, just my clients in that case, and that I cannot imagine the the pressure. And yeah, the pressure knowing that, you know, the, the rights and hopes and dreams of people are resting on the outcome of these cases you're working on. I just can't imagine it there. Are you, are you glad I said it, Steve? That's yeah, all I was no, thinking. No, no, I, I think it's, uh, it, well, and not, and not only that, um, but you know, that they were going up against this uh, sort of, you know, wall of racism, uh, you know, where the you know, the legal system felt like it was set against them. And, you know, I, I mean, the, uh, I'm sure at times they felt like they were tilting at windmills that this was, you know, just like, you know, an impossible task, but it really took some incredibly courageous, uh, lawyers and, and people to push this movement on and, and really change, uh, you know, history, uh, both, uh, uh, legally and uh, for all of society. In, in much the, the, more I, the more I get involved in this and talk to about people, they'll listen to me. And someone a, a couple of weeks ago said that I was a walking encyclopedia on this. <laughs> right. And I told them with everything that I'm learning, uh, if you think I'm an encyclopedia, then I'll tell you that I'm actually on page three of right. volume one in a 12 volume story. Uh, yeah. Yvonne, when you talk about being, you know, just how we get nervous, just taking on a particular case. When I read of the accounts that they had, that they went through, um, I mean, up to and including in some instances when Mr. Hollowell was handling cases, how a judge would simply turn his back on him and not even pay attention to him um, in the courtroom. But then again, again, then you have the other side of the same story when he's in a courtroom in middle Georgia at one particular point, the bailiff instructs, um, Mr. Hollowell and his then law clerk, Vernon Jordan to go be seated in the gallery. And Vernon Jordan says, but you've never seen a lawyer try a case from the gallery. How can we go sit up there? And as Vernon Jordan points out, he says that when Mr. Hollowell seeing that he had two fools to deal with, the bailiff and Mr. Jordan, <laughs> went, and quietly, went and quietly spoke to the judge to tell the judge what happened. And the judge was outraged that the bailiff would even dare say that. I mean, how dare you tell a person who's a lawyer he does not sit where lawyers sit? So it was, it's an interesting dichotomy of what's going on. Just you, you have some who are, outright hostile to the presence of black lawyers and the rights of black litigants. And then you have others who are going, well, what we do is we respect that. And we're not worried about who shows up in this courtroom. If this is a lawyer, lawyers sit here. 
And if this is a litigant who has a, a validly presented complaint before us, we treat them a certain way. So that, but in the most part, just to see what they went through and how they dealt with it, mm-hmm. that it is an amazing story, amazing to, to recall and find out. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Getting into the case of um, of Holmes versus Danner, uh, and, and if anybody wants to look this up, I'm going to go ahead and give a site like I would in the courtroom. Uh, it's a 191 uh, Federal Supplement 394. It's a Middle District of Georgia case. Um, so at, at the time that this case comes around, um, you, there had already been Brown versus Board of Education that said that you couldn't deny anyone access to um, uh, a public university or a public school uh, based on um, you know race uh, or color or anything of that nature. So, so it, the law was clear that um, that you couldn't discriminate on that that basis. And and as a technical matter, um, uh, the University of Georgia system um, wasn't was claiming that they were following that law, uh, but that they had put in some um, new requirements uh, that people had to comply with uh, in order to um, to become admitted to the university, and um, and essentially said that um, uh, they denied uh, uh, both uh, Hamilton Hunter and Charlene uh, Hunter uh, admission to the university, one, because of, uh, it mainly because of limited facilities. And so that became a big question on what it meant for there to be limited facilities. They tried to make the argument that um, they didn't have enough room in their dormitories. uh, And so they weren't accepting uh, any other students except for uh, uh, special exceptions. Um, and so that really came down to what the case was about. And, uh, and as I was, I was telling Yvonne earlier, it, you know, a big part of this case comes down to, um, you know, so they, so they get denied admission and then there's a, a, a administrative remedy. There's an appellate procedure, uh, where they can, they can essentially appeal the denial, uh, up the chain. Uh, but the, uh, administrative remedy didn't give any, uh, timeline or any deadline by which the, uh, it, it, administ- uh, the official, uh, 
had to make a decision by. So basically, they would appeal this decision, uh, and then the university would do nothing and um, and would just sit on it. And so the court uh, spends a lot of time talking about how long um, they had just sat waiting for there to be some sort of decision. And then the and then you know the uh, University of Georgia uh, system was taking this position that they had to reapply every quarter and then reappeal every quarter. And so by the time the quarter was over, then they had to do it all over again. And so basically you were getting into a place where they were just never going to be able to get into the school. Uh, but it was uh, just because, you know, they had been denied on legitimate grounds, according to Georgia. And then, um, and then the, they hadn't exhausted their administrative remedies. Um, and so it, 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 you know, the, the facts of this case uh, are troubling and, and you can see that they, that they're just being uh, pushed around, but the, the legal concept um, as I was telling Yvonne uh, before, it's, it's a little bit dry because you're talking about administrative remedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but so, um, and, and we'll talk about some of the things that the court ultimately found in this, but, but that was essentially the, the strategy um, of the school system was to was basically saying that they weren't discriminating. They weren't um, they you know they just uh, hadn't met the requirements for application and they hadn't exhausted their um, their appeals. And those little I'll call them irregularities yeah. they harken back to an earlier case uh, from 1949, the beginning in 1949, you referenced, um, Horace Ward earlier. Yeah. Horace Ward, who would become a part of the legal team that was representing Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes, along with Donald Lee Hollowell and Constance Baker Motley. Horace Ward had applied to the University of Georgia Law School back in 1949. And he was met with some of the most outrageous opposition that you could imagine. One of which, as you mentioned, these the the issue around having to have certain um, administrative things taken care of. He was told that he that his record was not good enough because he graduated from a black institution. Now, mind you, at that time, Yvonne, I wish it was that when I say this, I wish we can all imagine that we wish this was the case when we were applying to law school. (laughs) Uh, You only had to have had completed two years of college and then you could apply to the University of Georgia Law School. (laughs) Uh, We all would have loved to be able to let that be the the right criteria. But at that moment, the law school told uh, Mr. Ward that he was not qualified, even though he had a bachelor's and a master's of arts at that particular moment. He was told because his degrees came from black schools, he, he wasn't qualified. Later on, he was told that he had to submit to a personal interview, uh, which comes back up later on in the, the Holmes versus Danner case. And Judge Ward was also told that he needed to get a certificate of moral good standing from <laughs> alumni of the law school. Uh, well, no alumni of the law school quite naturally knew who Horace Ward were, was. He didn't know who they were. So that was, of course, a requirement that was not going to be able to be met. He decided later, after, and during one of the administrative appeals there, he curiously 
was drafted into the military. Right. And there are those who believe that his conscri- his conscription into the military at that moment was not just something that happened out of the ordinary. When he left service, he re- began to resume the issue of attending the University of Georgia Law School, but determined that because it was not going to happen, he went on to go to Northwestern. There was a there was a custom in the state at that moment where that existed that the state would pay black students to go out of state to be educated to keep them from be matriculating at state institutions. They called it state aid. And Mr. Ward decided he was not going to take state aid and so but he but he was not going to continue with the case. And so he went on to Northwestern Law School and ultimately became the first African American to sit on the federal bench from Georgia. And he was sworn in in the exact same courtroom of the judge that denied his, one of his appeals to be to be admitted into mm-hmm. the University of Georgia. But these these little administrative um, and requirements that crept up in the Holmes case, they started back in the Ward case, and that was one of the things that Judge Boodle pointed out as why he believed that the university's requirement of the interview was pretextual because you did it back here. And so you're just you're, you're, you're revising that same kind of that that particular impediment. But, you know, Hamilton Holmes and, and, and Charlene, they apply to go to application July 11th of 1959, wanting to go to the fall quarter of 1959. As you point out, Steve, they were both told that their application could not be considered due to limited facilities. In the early portion, they, the, university, the university never flatly denied the application. They just said, we can't consider it because we don't have the facility. At that point, all of the female students were required to live on campus for four years, and the male students were required to live on campus for one year. And so they told her, they told uh, Hunter, they told Holmes that we have limited facilities, so your application cannot be considered. Well, later on that year, uh, in November, they both asked for their application to be considered for the winter quarter of 1960. Again, they were told it couldn't be considered because we are not looking at applications for future quarters at this particular point. We get to we get to February of 1960. They both asked for their applications to be considered for the spring quarter of 1960, and they're again met with the thought with the, with the statement that because of limited facilities, your application cannot be considered. It's at this point that the additional requirements of having a personal interview is is put upon them. And by this time, not wanting to defer their education, much like uh, Judge Ward did, they had already entered into college so as not to lose their freshman year. Charlene went on to Wayne State in Detroit, Michigan, and Hamilton Holmes entered Morehouse College in Atlanta. And so the registrar, Walter Danner, when they asked that their application be considered for the spring quarter, told them that we need to have your transcripts from the other schools along with the personal interview before you can be considered. 
There was a point in December of 59 when Charlene and her father went and talked to Danner to talk about how to set up the interview and what would need to be done. And he was talking to them, responding to them, uh, but he never actually scheduled an interview for them. So with all of these administrative irregularities, uh, the, the students finally decided that they were going to retain counsel and on June 3rd of 1960, they retained Donald Lee Hollowell to represent them. Uh, Mr. Hollowell was a part of, a, at that moment, a part of a group called the Atlanta Committee for Cooperative Alliance. That committee was comprised of people like Atlanta business executive Jesse Hill, Leroy Johnson, who a few years later would go on to become the first black person elected to the Georgia State Senate and, and for that matter, any Southern legislature since Reconstruction, uh, Reverend Samuel Williams and also Donald Hollowell. They were, as I mentioned earlier, excited and energized by the cases that were coming down across the country. And it was through that committee that worked worked intensely to find the, the right students to apply to the University of Georgia. That, that's how they, that's how Ms. Hunter and Mr. Holmes were selected. And that's how Mr. Hollowell was tapped to be their counsel. So he filed, he um, immediately on the same day that he was retained, he took the steps of talking, of, of pursuing one of the appeals. State law said at that moment that any student denied admission to a university system of Georgia school had the right to appeal first to the president of that particular institution, then the chancellor of the university system of Georgia, and then finally the chair of the board of regents of the university system. So on the same day, Hollowell sends a letter to um, Mr. Adderhall, O.D. Adderhall, who's president of the University of Georgia, uh, citing the appeal, and Mr. Adderhall says that, well, Danner, the registrar, has told me that certain aspects of the application process, and we believe here he's talking about the transcript and the interview, have not been completed, so there's really nothing for me to do. Uh, Hollowell later writes another letter to Mr. Adderhall wanting to see if their applications could be continued and considered for another quarter, for the succeeding quarter. Adderhall responds by saying that he's a little confused. There might be some conflict between your letter and Charlene's mother's letter of the previous semester. Of course, using those two letters as a way to continue the delaying of, a, of an outright denial from the decision in that regard. Hollowell then decides to just go ahead and follow the process, appeals to the uh, chancellor of the University, of system, University system of Georgia. That's a gentleman. That gentleman's name is Dr. Harmon Caldwell. Dr. Caldwell again says that, well, he's spoken to Adderhall and there still seems to be something about the about the application process that is not completed, and so there's nothing for him to act on. Hollowell then goes ahead and pursues the next rung of the appeal at, to appeal to the chairperson of the Board of Regents, and that that appeal is met with a particular statement that, again, there was nothing that he could do at that particular moment. And so with all of these 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 roadblocks at that particular moment, 
the the lawyers decide that it's time to file a lawsuit. And on September 2nd, 1960, they do file a lawsuit, a preliminary injunction in the United States District Court for the Middle District of Georgia, where Judge William Augustus, Augustus Boole was presiding. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that, you know, one of the things that wh- I feel like one of the themes of this episode is going to be all the stuff Yvonne didn't know. Um, but one, <laughs> right. one of the other things I didn't know until I was law school is that there was this effort sort of behind the scenes in these important civil rights cases to identify um, a good plaintiff and identify a good context for the challenge. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. Derek, about how, um, you know, behind the scenes that these these two were, you know, sort of identified as 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 good sort of candidates to pursue this issue. Yeah. At one point, there was even a a, a, someone said that they were perfectly cast for the roles of the first black students of the University of Georgia. They characterized, they said they looked like light complexion Negro versions of ideal college students, <laughs> models for an autumn Coca-Cola ad in a Negro magazine. <laughs> that's an, that's probably one of the most insulting, flattering things <laughs> yeah. you ever come up with. But Considering the times, that's understandable as to why you're why you're making certain that you're selecting candidates to test these particular cases so that you could just rule out every possible reason of denial of exclusion except for the one that was actually present that it was race. You, you, you certainly you, if you if you're trying mm-hmm. to get people to be admitted to an uh, institution of higher learning. You want to pick people whose grades in high school are comparable to everyone else. You want to pick, you want to select people whose extracurricular activities are comparable to everyone else. You want to select people whose family upbringing and their background seems consistent with the family up, upbringing background of students that you've always admitted before. And so while a characterization like the one I just read is is somewhat peculiar and somewhat funny, but in the, in the vernacular and the imagery and the thinking of the times, it, it you, you see how that makes perfect sense. If if this is just any 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 a group of young people that we would open up any one of our magazines and see, and right. they look like they should be on, on a college campus, but for the complexion of their skin then why are you not admitting on your, on your college campus? So yeah, that, that it's always important, I think, for, for, for us to know what was happening in the background, what was happening on the periphery to make these things get to the forefront. Right, right. The other thing um, I, di- I didn't know was that state aid thing about paying, uh, Right. Yeah, black I didn't students know that to go elsewhere. That makes me want to barf. Yeah. That's that's when you when you learn things like that, it, it becomes a shocking testament and a stirring eye-opener of the extent to which in various periods throughout the history we have not kept our habits in line with our thoughts. One of my favorite quotes about the law comes from Woodrow Wilson, where he says that law is the crystallization of a society's habits and thoughts. We've had some pretty decent thoughts from our beginning, and we've had some really indecent habits 
since mm-hmm. our beginning. And, and that kind of rule is an example of our indecent habits that make you just raise your eyebrows, cock your head and wonder what's wrong with us. Yeah. 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 Um, well, a, as you said, you, you, you set it up, uh, so nicely, uh, that they, you know, finally made the decision to file for a preliminary injunction, uh, and that was denied, uh, by judge Boodle. And then he had a trial on whether or not there was going to be a permanent injunction. And that's how we end up getting the opinion, uh, here. And I, and, you know, and, and judge Boodle in his opinion, talks about how he can't really go through all the facts that they that came out during the trial but sort of highlights some of the uh some of the uh more disturbing facts I, I would say and this this idea that um that both uh Hamilton um uh Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter had to go through an interview uh you know first of all he he outlined sort of you know how many other students uh, went through, uh, you know, a so-called interview or a superficial interview where let's say a family member would interview them and that would qualify. And then they, Mm -hmm. then he compares that to the interviews that they had. And he actually quotes the questions that Hamilton Holmes Mm. was asked, uh, during his interview. And, you know, and I, I think, you know, when you're, when you're talking about somebody who wants to go to college, you might, you know, talk about what are their hopes, aspirations, what are they interested, stuff like that. But the kind of questions that he got, uh, were, you know, whether or not he had ever been to a house of prostitution or, um, you know, had he ever been to an interracial party, um, you know, or what did he think about the integration crisis in New Orleans and Atlanta? Um, and, and had he ever been arrested? And it, it was sort of a string of questions along those lines where, as the judge pointed out, um, were specifically uh, meant to uh, find reason to not admit uh, Hamilton Holmes. 45 minutes was the total time of Hamilton Holmes' interview. And he was grilled with questions like you just read. And you're, you're absolutely right that Judge Boodle thought that was just out of the norm. No other applicant who who either had an interview or had their interview waived ever had to be subjected to to questions like that. Um, And and I want to go back a little bit when you mentioned that Judge Boodle denied the preliminary injunction. I think it's important to emphasize that act and his reason for doing it. We've got an extraordinary case here, but when we're talking about respect for the rule of law, Judge Boodle did not do anything extraordinary that he would not have done anywhere else. He looks at this and he says, you have not, you, the plaintiffs, the the, the litigants, you have not exhausted your administrative remedies. And therefore, it's not right for me to hear this yet. You've got to go back and and do that aspect. Secondly, he he denies it on the second basis that the issue is so monumental. This is not something I'm going to do in a hearing. I actually want a full trial. So here's what I want you to do, University of Georgia. I want you to go back and I want you to make certain that you have the actual interview that you actually give the, 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 the plaintiffs the opportunity to fulfill their administrative remedies. And then I want you to do that. I want you to have an actual answer one way or the other within 30 days of my order. I think that's, I think it's important that that's emphasized, as I mentioned earlier, because if we're all, if we're going to 
if we're going to have and if we're going to convey to the general public the respect for the rule of law as we talk about these extraordinary cases, we need to point out when there there's, there's no extraordinary measures taken. We are following what the rules say in this particular regard. And I think it's his emphasis to tell the University of Georgia that you have to make the, if you're saying that an interview is part of what is required for them to be admitted, you are going to have to make that happen. And and finally, I think he didn't think they were going to do it, which is why he put the timetable on them. Because as you point out earlier, Steve, he had he was he was later he had begun to understand that you were straining out the appeals process for more than 120 plus days. So I'm going to have to put some very fine, some very definite time front timetables on you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I wanted to go back to that for one second, because one thing I wanted to make sure people understood is um, when he's making the decision, whether or not they had exhausted their administrative remedies, first of all, he finds, you know, he finds that, that um, uh, they had exhausted them because there really was no time limit for them to ever uh, fulfill these. And, and as you said, uh, they did do the interview, but the other part of it was, is there, there, um, had to be, um, the university had to be free to accept people, uh, despite race or color. Mm -hmm. And there was a, an appropriations act, um, that was in place that basically said you can accept, uh, people of any race or color, you know, to your, uh, to your institution. Uh, but if you accept someone who, who is, uh, black, uh, then we're going to withdraw all funding to that institution. So, you know, the, on, on its face, I guess they were saying, yes, you could accept, uh, uh, uh an African-American, but if you do that, uh, you're going to, you know, you university of Georgia is going to have no money. So the, so the court found that, that, uh, they weren't free to, uh, accept, um, anyone despite their uh, race or color. That's the General Appropriations Act of 1956. That's one of those other, the wink and the nods that make, that, that, that make you realize that our habits don't keep in, don't keep aligned with our thoughts. That's right. That's right. So, um, so the, the judge goes on and I just wanted to point out one other thing, cause you know, he really does take some time to go through and compare the, the process, uh, between what, um, what Miss Hunter and, and Mr. Holmes went through compared to other students. And he, he specifically points out another student um, uh, who was a, a, a young uh, a white woman named B.B. Uh, uh, Dobbs Brumby, uh, who was applying the same time uh, that Charlene um, Hunter was, uh, was applying to the School of Journalism. They had both been to out-of-state liberal arts colleges uh, and they both were denied admission uh, because of limited facilities. But then the um, admissions department for the University of Georgia told Miss Brumby that if she applied to uh, the Marietta University Center of the University of Georgia for the fall quarter, uh, you know, for 1960, then the next semester she would be allowed into the University of Georgia. And they didn't uh, give that same advice to Miss Hunter. So I, I thought that was a really uh, good example by the judge of, you know, where you've got these two students, one, you know, the only real difference between them is one's black and one is white. And, uh, and you obviously gave this woman 
some help where you didn't give uh, Miss Hunter the same same level of advice. That evidence comes to light during the discovery period. I think November of somewhere, somewhere around November of 1960, uh, Don Hollowell writes a letter to B.D. Buck Murphy, who was a private lawyer but was acting as a we now call a special assistant attorney general and handling the case on the behalf of the University of Georgia. Mr. Hollowell writes him and says that he wants to inspect all of the admissions records of students who were admitted to the University of Georgia beginning uh, at the fall quarter of 1959, which is when Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter had originally applied. Uh, Of course, Mr. Murphy and the University of Georgia system officials were not cooperating. And so they had a hearing before Judge Boodle and he ordered that those rep at the university turn those records over for review. Well, Horace Ward, as I mentioned, had joined Mr. Hollowell's law firm, and Vernon Jordan, who was who was fresh out of law school, was was a law clerk. He hadn't he hadn't taken or passed the Georgia bar yet, but he was a law clerk to Mr. Hollowell. And so, Mr. Hollowell dispatched Horace Ward and Vernon Jordan to pour over these these records. And after their searching, uh, it was it was actually Vernon Jordan who came up with what you just read. He found the information about uh, Miss Brumby. And when he finds it, he tells Constance Baker Motley, this is it. And there's a riveting portion of how Constance Baker Motley used that evidence at trial. She has Paul Key on the stand. As you mentioned, he's the admissions counselor. And she's asking him, since you, you're the one that makes decisions about admissions and you keep her records, can you take a look at Ms. Ms. Brumby's transcript and do you see any A's on there? And Mr. Key responds, well, she asked him, is she an A student? And Mr. Key says, well, she's not an A student because there are no A's on there. Uh, well, do you see any any B's on there? Other grades, uh, Ms. Motley asked, and he goes on to say, well, yes, there are two B's and the rest are C's. And so that information coming out on the stand before Judge Boodle, as you point out, Steve, you have two relatively comparable students, same gender, same major, both wanting to transfer, roughly similar academic uh, uh, standing, but you have made a decision to admit one and not the other, and the uh, one you admitted applies after the one you denied and when you said when your basis for uh, not considering the application was that you had limited housing but the one who you admitted applies after miss hunter and she somehow magically gets housing so it was amazing testimony to come out on the stand and 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 there was even another smoking gun uh that came out the a very influential member of the Board of Regents wrote a letter to the president, excuse wrote a letter to the chancellor at one particular point and was seeking to get some assistance on the admission of a white student. And the chancellor writes the president a letter saying, I've told Howard Calloway that we are looking into the matter, but I understand that you are saying that there is no housing for the Negro applicants and we're basing and you're using that to base your decision on. So that smoking gun test piece of information comes out. Of course, the judge 
knows it for what it is and can use it for what it is. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so the judge, uh, um, makes the decision, uh, you know, grants the permanent injunction, um, to, and, and basically says that not, not only are they, um, not allowed to refuse, uh, the applications of plaintiffs, he actually orders them to be admitted to the university of Georgia, which was different from, I think some of the prior cases, if I was looking at it, was, was there a, a prior case where they had found, was it, I think, the one involving Georgia State University, maybe? Uh, versus Arnold, yes. Yeah, okay, where they, where they had found, um, uh, you know, that they were uh, discriminating, but didn't order them to be admitted to the school. Correct. And, and, so, uh, and so that was the difference here, where the judge actually goes the, the extra step and, and orders the school to admit um, uh, uh, Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, and then, uh, if I if I was understanding right, so he he orders enters this long opinion, but then uh, abruptly a few days later stays his uh, his order. Is that right? That's correct. He enters his order at saying that they, that the student should be admitted on Friday, January sixth, nineteen sixty one. And as you point out, he leaves it up to Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter when they want to register. If they wanted to register immediately. They, that's fine. If they want to do the, the the next quarter, that's fine. Well, on Monday, January 9th, they show up to Danner's office to register. And they first go to whatever the department was where Hamilton Holmes needed to go to. And then they go over to the journalism department. They are met with, <clears throat> with a group of students who are shouting racial slurs at them. They go over to the journalism department and all of a sudden they hear this abrupt cheer outside. When the news is reported that Judge Boodle has issued a stay. He issues an order on January 6th saying that the that the students should be admitted. He has found that they have been denied, although there is no official policy of racial exclusion. He says there is a tacit policy and orders the student to be admitted on January 6th. January 9th, he issues a stay of his own order. He later says that he did that because it's something that he did in all cases and that all litigants have a right to appeal. Uh, But he also goes on to say that what he wanted was the backing and the support of the Court of Appeals, understanding, fully appreciating that what he was doing is overturning something that had been in existence 175 years. Like you talked about in Hunt versus Arnold, they found in those cases that the basis of denial was race, but they did not order the affirmative remedy of admission. Well, Judge Boodle goes the next step and says, no, you have denied them because of that, and so now they must be admitted. So he issues the stay because turning everything on its head after 175 years, he wanted the backing of the Court of Appeals. And so that afternoon, um, that morning, uh, Constance Baker Motley and, and Mr. Hollowell are on the phone with Judge Elbert Parr Tuttle, who is at that moment the one of the judge on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And in another one of those um, those aspects that you can't make this up, Judge Boodle, excuse me, Judge Tuttle 
was one of the Republican officials that the United States Senator from Georgia at that moment relied upon in determining who should be appointed as a judge. And one of the people they were considering was Judge Boodle. And so Tuttle is kind of responsible for Boodle being admitted to the court. And Boodle's nomination to the court was accepted on May 18th, 1954, the the one day after Brown versus Board of Education. Wow. So you can't make up his being appointed to the court one day after Brown. And you can't make up the fact that Judge Tuttle is now who is partly responsible for Judge Boodle being on the court is now being asked to consider the stay that he's issued. Well, Constance Baker Motley calls Judge Tuttle in Atlanta and asks how long would it take for him to issue a stay? Judge Tuttle's response is, how long will it take you to get here? Um, <laughs> and she says, I think we can be there by 2.30. He says, well, hurry up and get here, but I need you to do something for you. You need to, you need to do one thing. I'm not going to hear it unless all parties have proper notice. There again, while we have an extraordinary situation going on, where we have judges who are not doing anything extraordinary. They're doing something heroic. They're doing something vital, but they are following the rules. I'm not going to hear this unless all parties have been notified, but you need to get here by 2.30. And so uh, Ms. Ms., Ms. Motley and Mr. Hollowell jump into a car and they hightail it up to Atlanta. And they have a quick hearing in the chambers in, in Judge, uh, Judge Tuttle's courtroom, and he reverses the stay. This is happening on Monday, January 9th. Well, at the same time that we find out that Judge, Judge uh, Tuttle has reversed the stay, Governor Ernest Vandiver is now directing the state attorney general, Eugene Cook, to apply for an emergency hearing before Justice Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black, who, as we all know, each of the Supreme Court justices um, preside over one of the circuits. And at that particular moment, Justice Black presided over the Fifth Circuit. Georgia was in the Fifth Circuit at that particular moment before it became the Eleventh Circuit, I think around 81 or 82. And so Eugene Cook, at the urging of Governor Vanderbilt, gets on a plane and and, and is ready to present his petition to Justice Black. At the same time, Governor Vanderbilt is sending a letter to the Speaker of the House, the Lieutenant Governor, saying that it is his very sad duty, but he is going to have to remind everyone of the General Appropriations Act of 1956 that Steve alluded to earlier. And because by a virtue of a court order, there are going to be black students admitted into the University of Georgia, he is letting everyone know that he is going to have to cut off state funds because that is the law. Now, to his credit, at the same time, Governor Vandenberg is is introducing a package of legislation to get rid of that particular that, that particular stipulation. But nonetheless, at that moment, he is letting everyone know that letting everyone know that that's what's coming. Um, so we've got that little bit of information taking place happening all on the same day, that Monday, January 9th, just, just three days, just that weekend after Judge Boodle had issued his order admitting the students to the University of Georgia. 
Well, and then, and then I, my understanding is, is that the, uh, I, I didn't realize this, but Justice Black was a uh, former member of the Ku Klux Klan. And so yeah. the University of Georgia, the state, uh, thought they were going to get a favorable uh, hearing from Justice Black. Uh, but he ended up, uh, along with the rest of the Supreme Court, uh, upholding Judge Tuttle's uh, order and uh, uh, overturning the stay. Yes, that happens the next day, January 10th. Uh, Black decides that what he's not going to do is just issue a, 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 an order on his own. He does take it to the entire Supreme Court, and the court unanimously upholds, upholds Judge Tuttle's reversal of the state. And there's this famous um, baseball cartoon that came in, some, something that happened with uh, the Chicago Cubs where a, there was some kind of triple play. It was a very famous cartoon around it. Well, it spurred a, a parody on that cartoon and, and the great editorial cartoonist from the Atlanta Journal uh, wrote an article, wrote a cartoonist and, about this whole issue and it called it From Boodle to Tuttle to Black and Back. And so that's, <laughs> that it, it, it got its way back to Judge, to judge Boodle in, in, in that regard. So that's happening on, January 10th of, 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 of 61. And at that moment, um, Hollowell and Motley get wind of the statement that Governor Vandiver had made the day before. And they go to Judge Boodle on that same Tuesday, January 10th, seeking an ex parte order enjoining the governor from following that state law. And Judge Boodle issues that ex parte order telling the governor that he is prohibited from directing the, 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 the state revenue department from withholding any funds to the University of Georgia in defiance of his court order. Uh, governor Vandiver sends off a telegram that says to effect that he is not, he has a respect for the, the, the orders of the court but he thinks that the judge has engaged in a usurpation of the legislative prerogative. He had no intentions of defying the order, but he thought that the governor had, excuse me, the federal judge had no business in telling the chief executive of a sovereign state what he could and could not do. And in his words, when that chief executive is merely following the laws of the state. Wow. That timeline is particularly amazing when you think about how they didn't have cell phones and stuff. Like right. there, there, there wasn't anybody at the Capitol who was like texting, like, Hey, guess what just happened? Like the fact that it was moving along so quickly is, is I, I flag that as just being surprised because we know how slow um, litigation can move even when you're trying to push it along, but how quickly this all happened, especially in that era, is really fascinating. Well, this one, it, it's interesting, I think, because this owes to that sensitivity that the mother has for another mother. Uh, Ms. Motley had always had a practice when she would finish a hearing. She had a young son back at, back at home in New York. And whenever she finished a hearing, she would use the phone in the clerk's office to call her son. Well, some of the female clerks in the, in the, in the, in the offices of, of the courts around the country 
understood that she was a mother. And at that moment, to, to, for her to call to check on her son, everything was sort of set aside. The issues of the day, race was set aside. You had two mothers having that understanding, oh, yes, you need to use this phone to call. And so when Mrs. Motley used, went, to, went to call, went to, went to go to the clerk's office to make her phone call, there was just a ready acceptance of her doing that. And so that's when she called Judge Tuttle. So as you point out, you, wow. didn't, have, you didn't have the cell phones, but because of that special sensitivity, because of that relationship that she had struck with the female employees of the clerk's office, she was immediately able to walk in and use it and get the, and make the telephone call and don't know what would have happened if Mr. Hollowell had tried to go in to make the call or Mr. <laughs> Ward had tried to go and make There may have been met with some kind of resistance, some kind of you know hostility. Uh, but Ms. Motley talking to another female, to a female clerk, was just completely welcome. And that's how the call was made. Wow. You really are an encyclopedia. (laughs) I am only on page three of volume one of the book, volume six. Right, right. Well, um, so, so, I mean, that's basically the story of, uh, of Holmes versus Danner. Um, after, or I, I guess as this is all going on and, uh, and, uh, Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter are at the University of Georgia or nearby, I, my understanding is, uh, some pretty severe rioting broke out and, uh, and even involved throwing several bricks into the, where, uh, Ms. Hunter was staying. That's correct. Now, now we move to the next day, January okay. 11th. We've got the order issued on Friday, January 6th. We've got the students showing up Monday, January 9th to register. The stay is issued on January 9th. We've got the quick appeal to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on the same day, January 10th. We've got Eugene Cook, the state attorney general, talking to Justice Black in Washington, D.C. By that same evening, Justice Black and the entire Supreme Court is reversing, excuse me, upholding Judge Tuttle's reversal. The students are now back on campus, you know, to, to, to go to, to get back in their dorm and go to class on Wednesday, January 11th. And there's this basketball game that's taking place between the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech, this massive in-state rivalry. And so there seems to have been, the word must have been put out that after the game, there was going to be a gathering of sorts in front of Ms. Hunter's dorm. And a group of students are there and there there is some violence at that particular moment. Some of the the white female students had been told to turn their lights out so that those who were going to throw bottles, Coke bottles and other things, they would know which window to throw them in. Um, Now, the curious thing I've always found curious about this, Yvonne, is that afterward there was a report of several windows having been broken out in the dorm that she was that she stayed in so it makes you wonder if some of the white female students did not get the message were some of the white female students tacitly supporting um charlene hunter by keeping their 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 lights on so that those who were pelting the 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 dorm with with coke bottles wouldn't know where to go or were those who were just throwing uh, bottles. They just did not have good aim. So we know they never <laughs> qualified to be Jake from at the right, university. Right. <laughs> I don't really know what was going on, uh, but there was, but the, but there was, there was a great amount of property damage. And 
the only person who seemed to have a degree of decency at that moment was the dean of students. He came out and he made certain that those who were rioting um, were, 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 were ushered away and he directed the Athens police to, to bring everything back to, a, back to particular calm. Um, we now have a situation where the next day, because for their, for their safety, Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter are now suspended from the university. <laughs> Keep in mind, as I'm, it, we, the only person who's living on campus at that moment is Charlene Hunter. Hamilton Holmes is not living on campus at that. He has he has off campus housing because remember, the, the, the male student didn't have to reside on campus after their first year. So he was a transfer student. He did not. He wasn't required to live on campus. And so he did not. But he, too, was suspended for his safety. Um, so, again, Mr. Hollowell and Ms. Motley, they go back to Judge Boole. And they say, they tell him what's going on, and Boodle issues another order and saying that the rights of the student are not going to be denied because of violence, and neither will the lawful orders of this court. Uh, and so that is almost the end of the legal proceedings relating to Holmes versus Danner. They go back to class the next day. And as Charlene Hunter writes, uh, while there was still some distance, some hostility uh, that she experienced on campus, and that the, the major portion of it was gone. A lot of the students in the school newspaper expressed their outrage at some of the as some of those who engaged in the riots, a almost two thirds of the faculty, when they were hearing that the funds may be cut or, and there was other, other things that were being talked about, almost two thirds of the faculty voiced their opposition to what the university officials were doing. You start the, the University System of Georgia then quickly began to understand that we are actually on the wrong side of this because now our faculty is saying, look, we may have stood with you in the beginning that no one should be admitted, but now that we've gone through the process of the court having admitted them and the, 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 the reputation, the character, and the, uh, and the image of the institution is being tarnished by some who attend here and many who do not, we are not going to stand with you in terms of this continued opposition, and so that was that's that's also a very telling part of what the faculty and some of the, some of the, a large part of the faculty and some of the students did at that particular moment. Later, I think around March, late February, early March, um, Charlene Hunter had been given her her own suite in the dorm, and she had her own kitchenette, and the thought process would be that she would make food for herself and not go into the dining hall. Well, of course, that sounds appealing on the first day where you can make your own food, get what you want. But after you're, after you're you know, engulfed with studies, uh, if you're on, you're on a college campus, I just don't have time to cook like I would at home. And so she wanted to use the dining facilities. And the thought process was, well, what exactly was the full meaning 
of the court order that Judge Boodle issued? Uh, was it just that she should be admitted because we have complied with that? There's really nothing else for us to do. And so they go back to Judge Boodle for the, for the final time in March of 61, and he issues an order that basically says, when I said she can be admitted admitted to the university, I <laughs> meant the university, okay? Right. I, didn't mean, I didn't mean just being registered in Danner's office. He, so he wrote down the swimming pool, the gymnasium, the dining facility, and whatever else is on the university campus that every student gets to use, I mean that. So, and with that order, that just that that's the official legal end of Holmes versus Data. Wow. Yeah. I, I I have to tell y'all that if when I was in college, if somebody put me in a dorm room with a kitchenette and said, <laughs> You can cook for yourself, I would have either starved to death. Or gotten, or gotten scurvy because okay. <laughs> that would have been like totally out of the question. I don't think you're alone in that. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and you know, it, obviously, um, even though from a, a legal standpoint, this was a huge victory, um, you know, Hamilton Holmes and, and Charlene Hunter, uh, uh, I imagine, did not have an easy time at school. Uh, and it just shows their level of courage, especially at that age, um, you know, to go where essentially you feel like you're not welcome. And, uh, and because uh, because they were doing something more important and uh, and bigger than just themselves. And um, and so it, it, it obviously shows a lot of courage on their part. It does. It does. I don't know if many of us don't exhibit that same kind of courage when we're driving on 25. Uh, (laughs) Uh, so it it, it has to be a different existence when you are engaged in an an activity with the thought process that everyone around you is against you but you're doing it for a principle and a purpose and a reason that's much higher and much more enduring than that particular moment and i would have to believe even as as they recount themselves that that is a thing, a principal thing that gets them through it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I I, um, I I wanted to make sure, you know, we've talked a lot about the people that were involved in this, but I mean, you know, and you've already mentioned that, that um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to let everybody know, you know, what ended up happening with Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter, who I understand her name was Charlene Hunter Galt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hamilton Holmes became a uh, successful orthopedic surgeon. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he passed away uh, from heart failure uh, back in the 90s. Uh, and then and Charlene Hunter Galt is a, um, an award-winning journalist uh, and has been with NPR and PBS and I think with the New York Times and some others and just uh, has done some tremendous work. And I think she, um, did she work on the documentary about uh, Donald Hollowell? Yes, she did. Okay. Yes, she did. Um, and then, and, and of course, Donald Hollowell, uh, you know, this is one of many cases that he worked on where he's just a, a giant of, um, of civil rights law in Georgia and in the nation. Uh, Horace Ward, uh, as you mentioned, um, you know, who had fought this battle the first time and, uh, and, and you know, unsuccessfully goes on to be a federal court judge. And I just had to think, you know, that um, how proud he must have been not, you know, when he was, uh, you know, helping try this case, you know, against the same university that had rejected him. 
uh, and then ultimately to succeed on that. Uh, and then, and then obviously he uh, went on to have a tremendous career um, as uh, as as a, a federal court judge. I love the way Vernon Jordan puts it when he talks about Horace Ward. He says that it was just a matter of poetic justice. And then he says, as his mother would tell him, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and Conscious Baker, Motley, Vernon Jordan, I mean, just the um, you know, people that are involved here, um, uh, just not only in this case, but just had tremendous careers, tremendous uh, uh, effect on um on the law and on society. I should also mention uh, uh, Judge Boodle. I read uh, somewhere he lived to the age of 102. 102, uh, yes. I mean, <laughs> and, and what it was a, a still a senior uh, uh, district court judge uh, up until the time of his death. So um, uh, there's a real interesting account uh, years later when he was 100. Uh, he talked with Charlene Hunter. Uh, I think there was some celebration going on back at the University of Georgia, and and she talked with him, and he did not recall exactly how long the trial took, and she had to remind him that it was four days and then some of the other things, and she says that his response to her was, well, what took so long? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But but when you call, when you mention these names and and going back to the whole point of the project that we're doing, we actually believe these names, these lawyers, these judges ought to be household names. The interesting and important thing to know about them is that they were black, they were white, they were male, they were female, and they were committed to the the power and the principle, what I like to call the mediating power of the apparatus of the rule of law. Donald Hollowell, Constance Baker Motley, Vernon Jordan, Judge Elbert Partuttle, Judge William Augustus Boodle, Judge William Henry Hastie, Judge Jay Wadies Waring, Judge Jane Boland, Belford Lawson, Marjorie Lawson, Raymond Pace Alexander, uh, Sadie Tanner, Marcel Alexander, C.B. King, Rachel Pruden Herndon, Griffin Bell, uh, uh, Emmanuel Molyneux, Noah Pardon, uh, Fred McGee. These names are names that are in pages somewhere in history books. But every time we tell the story about how America has made the advancement from going from the tension between all other persons to actual we the people. The names of these lawyers and judges need to be front and center. And that is exactly what we're we're making certain happen. And I really do appreciate being on Great Trials Podcast to help that take because I really thank you so much. Well, we've really enjoyed having you on. And and I think all of those names that you mentioned, tell me if I'm wrong, I'm betting that we can go to Hidden Legal Figures Podcast and listen to stories about those people. Some of them you you already can, and some of them are going to be coming up pretty soon. We've got our episode that's current right now which is timely, it talks about um, Donald Lee Hollowell, and we have something there now that gives a little background of him. Our next week's episode is going to feature uh, Reverend Otis Moss Jr., who himself is a veteran of the civil rights movement, but he is going to be talking about his reflections 
of Donald Lee Hollowell from the standpoint of being a client of his with respect to uh, Mr. Hollowell's representation of the students who were participating in the sit-ins in the early 60s under the Atlanta student movement. So yeah. it's going to be a really, really good episode. And we've got our other episodes, we'll be talking about some of those other figures like a Constance Baker Motley, like a Noah Pardon. Um, so I, I just want to uh, thank you. I want to remind our listeners that we've been listening to Derek Alexander Pope, who is the president and managing director of the Ark of Justice Institute. And you can look up Derek at onthearc.net. That's onthearc.net. Derek, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And actually, I have a special surprise for at least yeah. 10 of your listeners. Okay. <laughs> You've referenced the book twice, uh, Donald yeah. Lee Hollowell's Saving the Soul of Georgia. Your first 10 listeners that contact you and tell you that in addition to being subscribers of the Great Trials podcast, that they also became a subscriber of the Hidden Legal Figures podcast. <laughs> we're going to get them, we're going to get those first 10 listeners a, a, a complimentary copy of that autobiography. Nice. That's awesome. Well, well, you've heard it here. So uh, rush in and get your copy of Saving the Soul of Georgia. It's a fantastic book and tells just a great story of uh, Donald Hollowell, who is a a giant of the civil rights movement in, in Georgia and the nation. And it's uh, if you if you haven't subscribed yet to I mean to either of our podcasts, <laughs> but it, but especially for hidden legal figures, you know it's Black History Month's perfect timing. Subscribe, get Absolutely. started. Um, well, Derek, thank you so much for your time. We've really enjoyed having you on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Derek. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time. And hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.